as we take stock of where we are now. Deaths are at an all-time low, more people are turning to adoption and rescue for dogs and cats, older animals in the twilight of their lives are the fastest-growing pet demographic in America, geriatric veterinary medicine is extending both the quantity and quality of pets' lives, and collectively we're spending $100 billion every year on their care. That's the good news, but unfortunately, it's not the only news. Hi, we're the Winograds. I'm Nathan. And I'm Jennifer. This is part four of Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow, our five-part series on animal sheltering in the United States. In part one, we discussed the founding of our movement by Henry Berg, who incorporated the first SPCA over 150 years ago. Shortly thereafter, he succeeded in passing a modern animal cruelty law, putting a copy in his pocket, and spending the remainder of his life in service to animal protection. But as we saw, his vision of society dedicated to animals, all animals, gave way to a network of humane societies who accepted the pound contract, something he warned against during the course of his life, and became the leading killers of dogs and cats in America to the detriment of every other part of their platforms. It was the movement's original sin, a great betrayal which continues to reverberate to this very day. In part two, we discussed the internal battles that occurred throughout the 20th century between those who wanted to hold those organizations to a larger animal rights mission, goals that included keeping animals in these pounds from ending up in laboratories to be experimented on, and those who viewed the animals in their pounds as a source of desired revenue. By the time Nathan and I entered the movement in the 1990s, the regressive forces had thoroughly won out, killing became a fait accompli, and even large national groups like the Fund for Animals, HSUS, and the ASPCA were seeking laws to increase the number of dogs and cats killed by likening them to trash in need of, quote, proper disposal. But within this darkness, there was a flicker of light as the San Francisco SPCA began to recapture its roots, first by embracing innovative new programs that not only reduced killing, increased adoptions, and allowed animals to stay in their homes, but began broadening its mission back to Berg's vision by advocating for wildlife, animals in labs, animals in zoos, and animals destined for the dinner plate. In part three, we discussed how in 2001, after Nathan left his position as director of operations for the San Francisco SPCA, we moved our family from the Bay Area to Western New York so that Nathan could implement the San Francisco SPCA model at a municipal shelter, creating the first no-kill community in the United States. We then discussed the founding of our organization, the No Kill Advocacy Center, a nonprofit dedicated to ending shelter killing nationwide by spreading the model that allowed for that achievement, a series of programs and services we came to call the No Kill Equation. Finally, we discussed the success of that effort over the last 20 years, as evidenced by the roughly 90% decline in shelter killing nationwide since the founding of the No Kill Advocacy Center. Despite the growing number of pets in homes, the number of dogs and cats killed has gone from roughly 7 to 8 million a year to less than 1 million, an achievement that has been hailed as the single biggest success of the modern animal protection movement. This is where we find ourselves today, in part four, as we take stock of where we are now. Deaths are at an all-time low, more people are turning to adoption and rescue for dogs and cats, older animals in the twilight of their lives are the fastest-growing pet demographic in America as people are making lifetime commitments. Geriatric veterinary medicine is extending both the quantity and quality of pets' lives, and collectively we're spending $100 billion every year on their care. That's the good news, but unfortunately, it's not the only news. As our movement has become more successful, 
It is also facing increasing threats from vested interests, from corrupting influences, and from, as always, pedestrian flaws of human nature. What those threats are and how we can overcome them is the topic to which we now turn. So Nathan, we're at this place in the no-kill movement in which we made all these significant gains, but we seem to be stalled and in some cases even going backwards now. What's going on? So there is no doubt that our movement has made a tremendous amount of progress. When you and I first got into this movement in the 1990s, as we talked about in the earlier podcasts, the shelters in every city in the country were killing the majority of animals that came in. In some cases, like Philadelphia, for example, they were killing nine out of 10 animals. Across the country, probably one in two, at best, were, were being placed. So half the animals were losing their lives. And there was not a single no-kill community anywhere in the country. So that has changed dramatically. As you noted in your introduction, since Tompkins County, since the founding of the No-Kill Advocacy Center after we left Tompkins County, just in that small period, the decline in killing has been on the order of 90%. And the programs that San Francisco pioneered and that we expanded upon in Tompkins County aren't really considered controversial anymore. There are communities across the country that are fostering animals. There are shelters across the country that are doing offsite adoptions. All these programs that were the subject of tremendous pushback by shelters across the country and by the large national organizations that it almost, like when you talk to people now and you explain to them how difficult it was to get these shelters to embrace these programs, it, it almost seems odd, right? They're much more common than they used to be. Although, of course, you and I would argue that they're not nearly common enough. And even in those communities that have embraced them, they haven't implemented them to the point where they have eliminated killing entirely. Nonetheless, these programs are ubiquitous. When we started the No Kill Conference, we were the only national conference in the country that was talking about implementing these programs in every shelter, in every city in the country. And I think we've moved dramatically in that direction. That, so we had I... all these programs that we literally had to fight to implement. And it, it almost seems like silly now to talk about those programs as controversial because well, they're so obvious. They're so obvious. Yeah. It, it reminds me of that that joke where there's these two young fish swimming along and a, an older fish comes up to them and says, how's the water? And the two young fish just sort of look at each other a little confused and swim away. And then one of the young fish turns to the other fish and says, what's water? Right. Because it's so... It's so it's, it's so part of our landscape that, now, right? That it's invisible that now. That it's invisible, That you right. can't imagine how hard it was to fight for those basic and very common sense things. Right. And that's one of the problems we face today, that we are at a higher plateau, but we're still at a plateau and getting pushback on further innovation. But if you don't know you're swimming in water, if you are ignorant of history, which is the reason we put these podcasts together, then you don't know what it is that we should ask for, right? Because best friends and Organizations like Best Friends, and as we'll talk about in organizations like Austin Pets Alive, are trying to hold us back, are trying to keep us in a position where where we are now is where we ought to always be, and in some cases actually take us back. So we have to be aware of how we got here, 
and where we still need to go. And so we, we've seen this tremendous success all over the country. And the optimistic side of human nature would say, given how far we've come and given how much progress we've made, we should always be making progress. But that's not happening. In fact, there are now these countervailing forces that are corrupting the success we're having and causing the movement to stall and in some cases go backwards. And, and that's the challenge that we need to overcome. Okay. So we ended our last podcast where we talked about how we were at the No-Kill Conference and it was very successful and where the fiercest critics of No-Kill sent representatives there and then actually started recruiting the speakers that were at that conference to speak at their own conference. And, and you saw a shift in these organizations that were influential to shelters across the country that looked to them for guidance. You saw that these conferences that they used to have that were dominated with workshops, such as how do you help your their staff cope with, cope the, with stress the stress of, of killing. killing, but any suggestion of how do you replace the killing weren't there. But then they got the speakers that were at the no-kill conference. And so that was a phenomenon that we saw happen at the same time that, as we talked about at the end of it, Seth Godin had, had said to us, knowing the size of our movement at that point, that the movement was about to splinter. And I would say, looking back, you and I said it, how prophetic that was what we have witnessed, which is the bifurcation of this movement into those who want to continue to go down the path that we've been on to the absolute embodied potential of what humane societies and SPCAs should and can be. And then those that were invited to the No-Kill Conference had become sort of luminaries in the No-Kill movement. And the suggestion that there was room for continued improvement was very threatening to them. And, and then once they got invited to these conferences, and once, once that message reached these larger organizations, the hope that, that they would continue to innovate in terms of how we do even, an even better job became a threat. So we knew that as long as these pounds were killing, that they could rationalize away all these other areas. And we knew that once they stopped killing, that it would open up opportunities, not just to do more in terms of dogs, cats, rabbits, and the animals that come into shelters, but in all these other areas to, to do what San Francisco started to do, but didn't take to its logical conclusion. And that is advocate for any animal in their community that needed a champion, regardless of whether that animal was destined for a pound, destined for a laboratory, locked in a zoo, or going to end up at someone's dinner. The kind of vision that Henry Berg had in modern times with modern solutions. And I think what Seth Godin first did, and hindsight completely sort of took the blinders off, is show us what we already saw starting to happen. So, or, and also what we had seen looking back historically had happened. Right. So we already saw that when Henry Berg created this vision of advocating for all animals in his community, towards the end of his life, he started to fret about the future when he wasn't there. And of course, we know after he died and the ASPCA took over the pound contract it, and became the leading killer of dogs and cats in, in the community, that it completely retrenched away from his vision and where his society should have gone. We also saw towards the waning days of my tenure at the San Francisco SPCA, 
is what could happen when a visionary leader like the leadership of the San Francisco SPCA at the time was moving in a certain direction when they left and new leadership that either didn't have the skill set or didn't share that vision, didn't have the same passion for animals, how an organization can be a shining star one day and then completely collapse into mediocrity the next. And then we started to see that too during the No-Kill Conference. So as our movement got more and more successful, as these programs got more and more ubiquitous in shelters across the country, as placement rates started to climb up, as we went from killing seven or eight million to five million and then four million and then three million, even in our conference, we had all these communities that were where we told them they should go. You could be placing 92%, 93%, 94%, 95% of the animals. And it didn't make sense to us to continue to do the same conference every year when we had these communities already with us. And, well, not only that, when we knew that there was still room for improvement. Right, I mean, there, was, there were still animals that were dying, right? even under under that definition. And we need to talk about that as well. But under that definition, did it mean that all dogs with behavior issues were not being killed? No. And, and there were other animals like wild animals that were. So you had communities, for example, that were placing more 95 percent of dogs and cats, but slaughtering bunnies or providing no safety net for bunnies, not taking in these other animals that needed a safe place to go where that they can subsequently be patched together and rehomed or, as needed, or, right? Right. Or, or or maybe people would bring them injured wild animals and rather than treating those animals, either they would put them down, kill them, or they would refer them to maybe wildlife rehabbers in their community that were killing them. That may or may not right. have a so, like, philosophy, well, right? That, so, yeah. so there were all these gaps in the safety net, both as to dogs and cats, as to these other animals that ended up in shelters and as to animals in the greater community that maybe shelters never even thought about. And the more our movement got successful, we asked people, as you mentioned, one of the themes of one of our no-kill conferences was reaching higher. And we asked shelters to do not just, we didn't just ask them to do more, we actually brought in speakers that would show them how to do it. And there was pushback. I mean, some of our speakers who were luminaries at the No-Kill Conference and now luminaries in the growing No-Kill movement and being asked to speak at HSUS's national conference or Best Friends Conference felt threatened. Because right, because there is now speakers that were saying that this is what they should be doing to save animals that they knew were still under threat in their community. So in, in essence, they were having the same reaction to the prior generation of uh, the prior shelter directors, maybe that they would even replaced at the suggestion that they should could do more and could do better. Or that other people were doing a better job than they were. That was incredibly threatening because they reached a point where they were comfortable. They were like the prior generation. They were being asked to speak at national conferences. They were being written about in their local newspapers, in national magazines. And once again, we said there are still gaps in the safety net in your community. There are still animals that are not just dying outside the shelter, but that you're killing that are not being killed in this other community. 
And rather than embrace continued innovation, they fought back. And so the one, probably the biggest uh, example was this notion that in order to achieve no-kill, a shelter in a given community has to place 90% of the animals. And that is something that Best Friends has seized on and even talks about to this day, that we will be a no-kill nation when shelters across the country collectively save 90% of the animals. So the, the 90% rule is something that is become sort of ubiquitous. And it's sort of our, uh, if you want to say, it's sort of our... <laughs> it's our Frankenstein. It's, it's our Frankenstein's Frankenstein. monster. So, and, and the reason is, and that goes back to what water, right? Right. So everybody says, okay, you're, you become no-kill when you reach 90% of the animals. That's the standard. And you actually see that being discussed about in communities that are saying we're going to, you know, we're striving to be no-kill or we're embracing no-kill initiatives. But nobody questions where did this 90% rule come from, right? They, it, it's almost like it was handed down. From Moses. Yeah, from, on, on these tablets. <laughs> and it is right. beyond reproach, right? Beyond challenging. And oh, well, uh, t- well, we'll yeah. tell you where the 90% rule came from. The 90% rule came from us. Right. So. Okay, and why? So initially, when we were implementing all these programs to try to reduce the number of animals killed, increase the number of animals adopted, you would think that these large national organizations would have set benchmarks, metrics as to which animals are being killed, why are they being killed, what programs do we need to overcome them, what are the behavior challenges we're seeing in the shelter dog population, and how do we resolve them, what percentage of them are resolvable, what injuries and illnesses are we seeing in the shelter pet population, and which ones are treatable, which ones are beyond the reach of veterinary medicine, so that they could say, well, you can save X number or well, X I mean, percentage of dogs right, and cats, but right? That's uh, what you would, you would You would want metrics if you wanted to understand where the problems were, what, to what degree a certain thing was a problem, so that you could strategize as to how to fix that problem. But what people may not understand is that those none, none of that existed, and it didn't exist because of the the myths and rationalizations these organizations had told themselves about why the animals were dying. So if you put the blame outward and say, it's not us, it's the public, if you're not to blame for the killing, any impetus to change your own behavior that might affect that outcome simply disappears. So because all the strategies towards reducing killing were based on influencing what the public did, they were operating under the illusion that there was nothing that they could do to eliminate the killing. So there wasn't any, there literally was no information about the populations of animals that were entering shelters. There was no information about what, to what degree a particular program may or may not influence the need, the quote unquote, need to kill because they're, they weren't even trying to not kill. So therefore, why would they, it, it's like putting the cart before the horse. They didn't have that information. At the same time, however, the no-kill movement was growing in scale and scope and influence. And we started to see a shift in media coverage from, you know, no-kill being this radical idea that's inconceivable to the fact that people were clamoring for it. The media was clamoring for it. It was being successful 
in communities across the country. And so that put these shelters that were still killing the bulk of the animals coming in in a very defensive posture. So a lot of them started to embrace the idea of no-kill, but not necessarily the programs and services that save lives. Like L.A. County, for example, when we started advocating for the no-kill equation around the country, they would make arguments like, we're already saving all the adoptable animals, or we're saving most of the adoptable animals, even though they were killing somewhere on the order of 80% of the cats. So eight out of 10 cats were losing their lives and they claimed either they were saving all adoptable animals or, or just about almost saving all adoptable animals. So we needed a way to one, stop that kind of cheating where you essentially claim there's not much more we had to do. And in fact, when advocates started fighting for a no-kill Austin, at a time the shelter was killing roughly 64, 65% of the animals, the pounds director backed by the ASPCA claimed that they already were saving all the adoptable animals. So what you're saying is that there was no statistical benchmarks by which they were claiming that success. They were defining adoptable in a way that it allowed them to say to the public that they were saving all adoptable animals. But what the public thought they meant and what they knew that they thought the public meant by that word was very different when, than what it meant to them. So like, for instance, there was one shelter that said they were saving all the adoptable animals and defining adoptable as to whether or not they had any empty cages for that animal. So if they didn't have a cage for that animal, that animal therefore was not adoptable and they were killing them. So it was corrupted definitions. To the point where if they got adopted, they were adoptable. If they were killed, they were not adoptable. So they were always a no-kill shelter, even though, again, seven, eight, in some cases, nine out of 10 animals were being killed. And by saying that they were saving all the adoptable animals, they knew the public's impression was that dogs and cats and rabbits and other animals that maybe were sick or injured but treatable were being placed that underage kittens who just needed round-the-clock bottle feeding for a few weeks until they were old enough to eat on their own and old enough to be adopted were being placed. That if a dog or cat, say, was hit by a car but needed life-saving surgery or some type of medicine or other care, that those animals were being placed. Even though not only were they killing most of those, if not all of those, they were still killing healthy dogs and cats. But just by virtue of the fact that they were killing them, they became unadoptable. So so what you're doing is you're trying to set up what what it was like when we first started trying to share this message with the wider public about how to reform their shelter, that we needed to, we wanted to create very concrete ways that we were hoping were uncorruptible for people to measure how well their shelter was doing, that were, was divorced from words that had become corrupted to hard statistics. Right. So that, I mean, it's one thing to say to a city council, we want our shelter to be no kill. And we want right. to stop the killing. But, but how, how do you, you measure that when you have one, no metrics by the large national groups to which all these shelters turn to for guidance? And number two, shelters are claiming that they're already no kill, even though they're killing 80% or more of the animals. There had to be a proxy, a way for city councils, 
county commissions, health departments, bureaucrats that oversaw these shelters, shelter reform advocates, the media to be able to look to at this shelter objectively and say, and is say, it meeting the goal, the goal of a no-kill community? And I would say that the activists themselves didn't even know exactly what they should be, what what the metrics were. I mean, they they could go into these shelters and they could see especially once they understood that there were all these alternatives that the shelter could do that they that they weren't doing but they really didn't have a strong sense of what what percentage of animals actually are being killed that could be adopted that information did not exist and so one of the the biggest challenges we we faced was trying to communicate this information to activists and trying to put it into of terms that created objective measurements of a shelter's success So you wrote the book Redemption, and that was definitely the message of that book was to lay out the whole sweep of animal sheltering and what needed to be done instead and what was going on. You wrote in that book, you created the 90% rule. So you tried to give two shelter reform advocates and shelters this notion of this is how many animals that should be leaving your shelter alive. And if they're not, then you're failing. And so the important thing to ask is, what was that 90% rule based on 15 years ago? And why is that no longer a good proxy for measuring whether or not a shelter is living up to its potential? The unfortunate thing was to call it a rule rather than... Like a guideline. A guideline. (laughs) But, and it was, unfortunately, it was based on a very limited data set. Because when I wrote Redemption, there was Tompkins County, which at the time was placing about 95% of the animals. Then there was also Charlottesville, Virginia, that was placing about 92% of the animals. And there were uh, a number of other small communities that were somewhere in that neighborhood, somewhere above 90% and roughly up to 95% of the animals. And given that those were the best performing communities at the time, I rounded down and said a community achieves no kill when roughly 90% of the animals are placed. And unfortunately, I use the word rule rather than guideline. Well, because I would say that the definition of what you meant by no kill was that no healthy and treatable animals in that community were dying or being killed. And at about 95%. And and you're saying when you're doing that, it's about 90 to 95%. Yeah. And keep in mind, this was at a time when most urban cities in the country were killing one out of two animals in some cases. So it was Philadelphia, very, very high benchmark at that time. And it was at the time. And it was, yeah. But there are several problems with it, even then with hindsight. But, you know, now, it's not a standard that lives eternally or that makes sense going forward. One of the things you talked about in your introduction was how the geriatric pet population is the fastest growing segment of animals in the community because these animals are living longer. And because they're living longer, it's given growth to this field of geriatric veterinary medicine. We've had other advancements, not just on the medical side, but on the behavior side of veterinary medicine. And so conditions where the prognosis was poor or grave, where they used to be considered irremediably suffering animals like symptomatic parvo puppies. That was a death sentence 15, 20 years ago. Now, parvovirus, 
the prognosis is almost always good to excellent. So when you figure in uh, our greater understanding of behavior medicine so that we can treat dogs with what we thought were intractable problems in, in the past, when we can treat animals with medical conditions that 15 years ago were a death sentence, when we have a, a larger pool of shelters to draw conclusions from, what we're seeing is that better than 99% of dogs, 99%, better than 99% of cats are either healthy or treatable. So if the definition of a no-kill community, which is what it was always, that the only animals that are being killed are those animals truly irremediably suffering. And the archetypal example of that would be a cat hit by a car that has multiple, major multiple medical conditions and is in multiple organ system failure well beyond our ability to treat in veterinary medicine. You're talking about less than 1% of the animals that shelters see. So groups like Best Friends that have made tens of millions and now approaching $100 million a year in revenue fundraising that we're going to have a no-kill nation are using yesterday's standards, totally outdated, in order to measure today's progress. And the movement should never judge itself by taking a step back from what it has already achieved. So given that we have communities across the country placing greater than 99% of the animals. Then why is Best Friends saying that if a shelter achieves 90% that they're no-kill? Because clearly you've got, what, nine, nine plus percent of animals entering animal that shelter. That is being killed should not be killed. Should not be killed, right. But it gets worse. So when I talked about the 90% rule, I unfortunately made a second mistake, and that is I did a combined placement rate. And so what happens now is you'll have a newspaper article, for example, and this is actually more common than not. So I will get a Google alert that such and such a county, like Ventura County, announced a number of years ago that it had achieved no kill because it's placing more than 90% of the animals. So we know that that in itself doesn't make it no kill. But when you separate the species of animals it takes in. So I did what I always do when a shelter announces that it has crossed the 90% threshold, which is a great achievement in a community when in the past, it was killing more animals than it was placing, right? Progress. And we should always celebrate progress. But it's not the finish line, and it was never meant to be. So I would ask for the raw numbers. So when Ventura County a number of years ago first announced that it crossed 90% and therefore it was no kill, let's put aside just for a moment that 90% does not equal no kill when communities are saving greater than 99% of the animals. But when I asked for the raw number, it was placing somewhere like 93, 94, 95% of the dogs, but it was only placing somewhere in the neighborhood of 75% of the cats. So from the cat's point of view, it wasn't even at 90%. But by combining those two numbers, because they were taking in more dogs than cats, combined, they were placing somewhere in the neighborhood of 90% of the animals. But So it doesn't even give you an accurate measurement of 
uh, species specific. Right. So yeah. from the cat's point of view, it's 75% is not terrible, kill, right? right? And the same with Los Angeles, for example, this year, Best Friends falsely announced, as it has constantly, falsely announced that the city of Los Angeles achieved no kill because it had a combined 90% placement rate. Well, first of all, the placement rate wasn't even 90%. They took out what are called owner-requested killing or what they call owner-requested euthanasia. But studies have proved in my own experience. So when I ran shelters, we didn't allow what, what's called owner-requested euthanasia and what I called owner-requested killing. People could bring us those animals, but whether they were killed or placed was a determination we made after a thorough medical and behavior review. And what we found and what studies have found is that somewhere in the neighborhood of one-third or more of those animals can actually be placed. They are not irremediably suffering. They don't have intractable problems that are not amenable to veterinary intervention. And so Best Friends simply allows pounds like the city of Los Angeles to kill all those animals, but doesn't count them. So when you count those animals, and there's a simple rule when calculating your placement rate, all noses in, all noses out. You count everybody because then you get game playing. Like when I first got hired by the city of Philadelphia to do a top-down overview uh, of their pound, they would ask all people who surrendered their animals to sign them over for killing. And then some of them were placed for adoption and some of them were killed, but they didn't count the ones that they chose to be killed. That's how shelters cheat. So we count all animals. And when you count all animals, it wasn't even 90%. It was less than that. It was somewhere in the 80s. But then when you start breaking out the statistics, dogs might be higher, cats are low, lower. And then you even look within the numbers. For example, the pound at the time was killing all cats who were unsocial with people, all of them. So in 2020, which is the year Best Friends announced, the city of Los Angeles achieved no kill. For the first 11 months, every feral cat that came into the shelter was put to death. How is that no kill when these animals are healthy and in some cases treatable? So the, the struggle then is you create, first of all, there's this term adoptable, which the public thinks means something different than the shelters are defining it as. And then so the attempt to end the abuse of that term and misleading the public is to create statistical benchmarks that you give people. And now they're now they're using that as an excuse to kill. So a shelter just because they're achieving 90% placement rate, using that as a reason to say, well, that gives us wiggle room to be able to kill these other healthy animals. It's so corrupt. So in 2009, the No-Kill Advocacy Center sued the county of Los Angeles on various bases. But one of the bases was that they were killing animals by deeming them unadoptable. And some of the conditions that their veterinarian determined were not treatable were diarrhea, upper respiratory infections, literally the common cold, yeah. and conjunctivitis. Red eyes was a death sentence for cats in that shelter. And they were claiming that animals that couldn't be completely cured during the holding period were not treatable. So if you had a dog come in, say, with a broken leg, you can cast that leg and a couple months later, the dog would be as good as new. They were claiming that dog was not treatable because 
the leg wouldn't be fully healed in the four-day holding period that California mandated at that time, which is where this idea that we needed statistical, mathematical benchmarks to get rid of the game playing that occurs when you use terms like adoptable that are so capable of corruption, right? And so then you have this mathematical benchmark, and now we see organizations like Best Friends realizing that they can get incredibly wealthy by peddling this false idea of no-kill, by corrupting even the mathematical benchmarks. And so that's one of the challenges the movement's facing now. All these animals, healthy animals, treatable animals, feral cats, underage kittens, dogs with broken legs, kittens with conjunctivitis are still being killed. And yet Best Friends is claiming they've crossed the goal line, essentially telling the community there's nothing left to do for these animals. And if you pretend, if you act like they don't matter and you're just sweeping them under the rug, you're also ignoring the groups of animals and the particular issues that they have that require your continued, where you should be heading in terms of your innovation. Like it it shuts down any innovation. Do you think that the 90% rule now as it is today is achievable by shelters simply by accepting the programs that the sheltering industry had fought for so long. So if a shelter just says now we're going to allow volunteers, we're going to allow foster homes, we're going to allow rehabilitation of some animals, like, do you think if they, if they just get out of the way of the public that wants to help them, that they can very quickly achieve this 90% placement rate? And is that why it's also become so ubiquitous? Because Best Friends understands that they don't have to push shelters to do anything other than embrace what has sort of become the status quo? Yes and no. So remember when we got to Tompkins and we told the story in the last part, how we were met at the door by a guy with five kittens that his cat had. And that was sort of the start to the no-kill initiative in Tompkins County. The day before I got there, Tompkins was not a no-kill community. There was not a single no-kill community in the country. On that day, that morning, when he handed me that box of kittens, he handed the director of the first no-kill community those kittens. And I hadn't even walked in the door yet on my first day on the job. We reduced killing by, I think it was about 78% overnight. And we achieved a better than 90% save rate overnight. And we did that because all the animals that came into the shelter had needs And those needs were addressed by a program that provided an alternative to killing. So when underaged, orphaned kittens and puppies came into the shelter, they went into foster care. As we discussed that first summer, we were the foster program, but it expanded over time. So if a cat was hit by a car and had a fractured hip, that cat was sent to a veterinarian, provided rehabilitative care went to a foster home and was adopted. So no matter what need the animal had, that animal was put into a treatment program that addressed that need. And and if your work revealed that there was a particular area where there was a lot of animals that were at risk, then your efforts as a director focused on expanding that safety net of care. So that was important information to have if you really wanted to reach your potential. Right, but to answer your question, so yes, In order to achieve a 90% or better placement rate, 
all you had to do is these basic cost-effective alternatives to killing that could be implemented on day one and grown over time, obviously. I, I don't want to suggest there aren't institutional barriers to life-saving. Like it, that first summer where you and I, actually I was at work, so mostly you and the kids were bottle feeding somewhere on the order of 49 orphan kittens was a lot of work. For you, one person, but not for a community. Correct. But you have to grow programs over, right. over time. It was, I don't want to underplay how challenging that first summer was, but we did it. But the no part of the answer to your question is a different type of corruption that we've seen of late. It's a program called Human Animal Support Services, and it's being peddled primarily by Austin Pets Alive, where you can also achieve high placement rates without implementing the programs by closing your doors to the animals. But before we get there, it sort of leads to a second part of the corruption. And again, Best Friend seems to be a cheerleader for this. This notion that you can't place all the lives at risk on day one. And best friends, in addition to getting rich, peddling this false notion of no-kill in the city of Los Angeles and elsewhere, they're also pushing this effort, trying to get communities to embrace no-kill resolutions, promising that they will be no-kill in five years. And they've also made that claim for the state of Utah, which is where they're located, right? So Best Friends is a Utah-based organization, and they have promised a no-kill Utah in this endless succession of five-year plans. And, you know, to much fanfare, they'll announce Utah's going to be no-kill in five years, and all these people will send the money. And as time goes by, the memories fade and when they don't reach their no-kill goal at the end of five years, which is inevitable that they won't, not because they can't. You know, as I wrote in Redemption, as I've probably said thousands of times, if shelters in every community replaced people who were hostile to saving lives, if they comprehensively implemented the programs and services of the no-kill equation, we could be a no-kill nation today. The problem is that best friends, in addition to their corrupt, false claim of what no-kill is, they are not willing to challenge regressive shelter directors by doing the primary thing that achieves no-kill, and that is shelter reform. One of the things that we've discussed then is how and how and why the 90% rule has corrupted the movement and, and brought a halt to innovation that should be that that's, a, that's an inaccurate benchmark for success. Just so for clarity purposes, how would you define a no-kill community? And I know we have resources on the No-Kill Advocacy Center website where we have guides that assist people in determining really how well is your shelter doing. Right. We have two guides that I think are important here. One is called Defining No-Kill. And the second one is a matrix that literally lists medical and behavior conditions that we see in the animal population and therefore in the shelter pet population, because that's just a reflection of the larger population and whether they are treatable. So the matrix guide is, is interesting in that it basically is a, it's a checklist that, that the No-Kill Advocacy Center created, that if a shelter were to operate, treat every animal according to this checklist, that leads you down a path. It's a flow it's chart, it's right? A flow chart. In that's order to save lives, in order, in order to rehabilitate animals and, and place them. And 
So it asks you questions about the particular animal because one of the hallmarks of the no-kill movement is that every animal is treated as an individual. Correct. So every individual animal is walked through this chart, which directs the shelter how to behave with a very, very strict strict definition of no-kill based basically mostly on on a broad veterinary In the broadest sense, a no-kill community, the only animals still dying in a no-kill community. Truly no-kill community. Right. Are those animals who are irremediably suffering and in the guide, it is strictly defined as an animal who has a condition that results in a poor to grave prognosis for being able to live without unremitting pain despite prompt and necessary veterinary care. And that's the broad definition. In the matrix, we list all these medical conditions and whether they would be treatable or whether the an animal who has this condition would be irremediably suffering, which is even further refined by this matrix or checklist that people go through. Because you could have a condition and have a good quality of life and another animal might actually be suffering depending on the severity of the condition. Like, for example, kidney disease. There is initial stages, further stages, and end-stage kidney disease. Yeah, so, I mean, a cat, for instance, can live for many years with kidney disease if they with get maintenance. with fluids. Yeah, right, with maintenance. And so we try to bring rigor to a movement that sorely lacked it. And it sorely lacked it, as you said, one, because shelters were claiming it wasn't their fault and there, and therefore any impetus to change their own behavior disappeared. And two, it lacked it by design because metrics bring scrutiny and scrutiny results in accountability. And for a movement that has gotten incredibly wealthy, collectively putting its feet up on the desk and letting animals die needlessly. Or that, killing them. Yes, killing them. That was a threat and they went literally bananas. They didn't want it. But we won essentially in the sense that these programs are not seen as controversial anymore. They are being discussed at conferences by groups that once were incredibly hostile to their implementation. And as we said, collectively, the death rate is below 1 million. But it's still there's still a million animals. A significant number of animals. That the do vast not majority the of those that you just have irremediable suffering. Right. So right. you so you're saying that the night so the, the massive decline in killing that we're seeing is the result of shelters across the country embracing all of these programs, but not necessarily to the point where those individual communities are actually no kill because or, there's still that Right, uh, where they've replaced killing entirely. And we're just kind of as we've said before, like the no-kill movement, the success we've had so far is dragging, kicking and screaming these shelters up to a higher plateau. But now we're just sort of wandering around on this plateau where there's still animals at risk and, and they're still dying. Correct. And there is built-in incentive from the organizations that are very wealthy selling this message to not innovate any further. Right. Not to challenge their friends, not to challenge themselves, not to work harder and... You know, it reminds me when I got hired as the director of the Tompkins County shelter, one of the things that they wanted to do was to build a brand new pet adoption center. 
And one of my tasks as the director, besides the day-to-day -day operation of the shelter, was to run a capital campaign to build this brand new pet adoption center. And one of the ways they were selling it before I got there was, if you give us the X millions of dollars to build this pet adoption center, we will become a no-kill community. Which, by the way, is what a lot of humane societies and SPCAs do. Promise. It's right. claimed that somehow it's related to the facilities as right. opposed to their programs. And staff. Which is not true. Programs and staff. Right. As, as we mentioned in part one and part two of this podcast series, for a, a lot of staff, this is a job. It's, it's not a mission. You might be in a prettier building, but right. if you don't have alternatives to killing, you're still mind, killing. You bring the same mindset. Right. Yeah. People same with the staff. same mindset. And you don't implement the programs that actually provide an alternative. But anyway, so that's what Tompkins was doing. And to be fair, they actually believed that. It goes back to the how much confusion there were there right. was back then about what, why animals, why were, animals dying. were dying yeah. right, or being killed. So I got there, and before we even raised all the money for the new facility, and so obviously before the first shovel hit the ground, on day one, we were a no-kill community. And so the argument or the, the campaign claim that if you give us X millions of dollars, we'll build this new building and we'll be a no-kill community. Well, that went out, you went window, out, it went right? out the We window. were already no-kill. That doesn't mean that there weren't other good reasons to raise the money. And in fact, given how successful we were and how beloved we became, people were pressing 20, 30, 40, sometimes $50,000 checks in my hand. We raised the money very quickly. And you don't need to threaten continued killing animals to get right. people to want to donate to help animals, right. right? But given our success on the verge of starting a capital campaign, one of the board members said to me, you achieve success too quickly. How are we going to get people to give us money to build this building? Astonishing. The goal was never to have a building for the right. building's sake. Outrageous. Right. You stopped killing animals too soon because now we can't fundraise off the idea that we're going to continue to kill them if you don't give us money for this new facility. Mind boggling. Mind truly. But that's what Best Friends is doing writ large on a national scale. We'll be no kill five years down the road, 10 years down Meanwhile, the road. Meanwhile, they're not doing, doing or saying or advocating for the things that need to happen. They're not even acknowledging the things that need to happen right. in order to make that absolutely true, to close right. the remaining gaps. Right. And they're ignoring the biggest elephant in the room is that we could be a no-kill nation today. today. And Secondly, when the pressure is on, I mean, so there was a time prior to the growth of social media where best friends could announce we're going to be a no-kill Utah in five years. And people would forget because five years is a long time. But in an age of... And people want to believe. They want to... Right. Th that's a and worthy goal and they want to they support it. And in an age of social media, in a digital age where every utterance and every action is captured for all time. Best friends is endless parades of five-year no-kill plans are starting to feel cynical to a larger number of stakeholders in the movement. And the way they get around that is to do what they did in Los Angeles, is announce that they have achieved no-kill according to plan, even when they have it. But the people that have always driven the demand for change are the people that are the rescuers, the people that are going in there, the people that see firsthand that it's a lie. And so 
they they can claim that and they can certainly get very wealthy. But the but, but they the, also provide political cover for the legislature. Oh, I realize you make it so much harder for those advocates to, to advocate. Put pressure on in order to. But but what I'm saying is that change. that that isn't going to go change. away. That right. dissatisfaction. I, I, I understand yeah. that, but I'm, it still comes with an enormous body count, and it lets out some of the takes some of the pressure off the people well, the same who are amenable to pressure in order to change. Yeah, and it, it it goes it puts us right back in the situation we were before where we were trying to advocate for these programs and we had large groups like HSUS and the ASPCA lo- telling legislators telling the public that we didn't know what you we were talking about and that everything we were saying wasn't true. So, you're right, they have tremendous influence. And so, with some you've said something to me once that I thought was so interesting, but the idea of trickle-down corruption where what we've witnessed is we had the HSUS and the ASPCA for reasons we explained in other podcasts that were, you know, had become very corrupt in their mission, granting access and a, a, a place at the big boy table to groups like Best Friends that then corrupts them, then Best Friends invites APA to sit at their table and then they become corrupted. And it's just this, once organizations get to a certain size and and are offered a, a limelight, the place right. at the table, that they get corrupted. And then it, it's just tragic. I mean, it's so sad. When you talk about trickle-down corruption and in terms of the level of corruption at a group like Best Friends is staggering. So, for example, when we tried to pass rescue rights legislation in New York State to make it illegal for any pound in New York to kill an animal if a rescue group was ready, willing, and able to place that animal. And based on a market analysis we did, roughly 25,000 animals would have been saved every year that instead were being killed even though they had an immediate place to go. What you're saying is shelters, we're going to kill these animals. Rescue groups were saying, we'll take them. And the shelters were saying, no, legislation was introduced to force the shelters to give the animals to the, the organizations that wanted to save, right. save and, them, their lives. It was based on legislation we passed in California, the 1998 Animal Shelter Law, which people know it as the Hayden Act, named after the chief sponsor of the legislation, then Senator Tom Hayden. And that law made it illegal for a California shelter to kill an animal if a rescue group was willing to place that animal and resulted in a 700% increase in the number of animals who were sent to rescue rather than killed from somewhere in the neighborhood just under 13,000 animals a year to almost 100,000 animals a year. So a law that is saving about 85,000 animals a year. And we tried to pass that law in New York State. By the way, and also after um, doing a survey among rescuers in New York who said that it actually was a huge problem. Right. Somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 percent of rescue groups said said that a particular shelter killed an animal that they offered to take off death row. Now, I mean, people listening are going to wonder why that might be the case. Why do shelters do that? Well, there's various reasons. They do it as retribution for uh, rescue groups publicizing inhumane conditions. Some pounds have a no rescue policy where they simply refuse to work with any rescue groups. Some find killing easier 
than doing what's necessary to stop it. And some, some like the ASPCA, for example, the impetus of the law was a dog that the ASPCA raised millions of dollars on, an abused dog, and then chose to kill. And a shelter said, we're willing to place this dog, but how is it possible that the ASPCA, which takes in 200 plus million dollars a year, raised millions on this dog, says they can't place this animal, and yet this no-kill shelter is saying, we can, right? It makes them look bad, so so much easier to... So this to, is the dog Oreo that... Right. Yeah. So much easier to create the fiction that the dog is, is quote-unquote, unadoptable and kill them then. And so anyways, we wanted to pass this law, which the ASPCA was opposed to. Well, it became, because it also got a lot of media attention at the time that Oreo happened, and there right. was, there, the rescuers were treated just abominably by the ASPCA. Yes, when the ASPCA refused to return their phone calls... And and respond to their emails, uh, the shelter sent uh, and again, two staff members to get the dog, and they were escorted And out. they had raised an incredible amount of money on the story of this dog who'd been thrown from a rooftop. Right. right. And so the ASPCA was opposed to the law, and when we tried to pass the law, Best Friends at the time was trying to get a foothold into the lucrative fundraising potential that was New York City the largest city in the country and the center of the nation's wealth at the time. And Best Friends wanted to open up a fundraising office in New York City, and they were initially opposed by the ASPCA, and they cut a backroom deal where the ASPCA agreed not to oppose them opening up a presence in New York City if Best Friends help them kill the legislation. And actually, Francis Batista, one of the founders of Best Friends, started calling organizations and asking them to oppose this rescue rights legislation. And it's not the first time that Best Friends has collaborated with these large organizations to the detriment of animals. So Best Friends, for example, was one of the original signatories of these things called the Asilomar Accords that were signed in Asilomar, California, where they basically made the determination that everyone wants the same thing, that shelters should not be criticized for killing, and that the decision of whether a shelter should, for example, implement a TNR program instead of rounding up and killing community cats should be left up to each individual shelter. And they shouldn't be criticized if they make the decision that they're going to kill these cats rather than sterilize them and return them to their habitats. Or if a shelter decided, for example, that it was just going to continue to kill orphan kittens and puppies and not implement a foster program, that they shouldn't be forced or criticized for not implementing a foster program and to the point where they made the determination that even the term no-kill should not be used because that contrasted with shelters that chose to kill. And Best Friends signed on to those accords and were forced to uh, withdraw their signatory to those accords after the No-Kill Advocacy Center publicly held them to account. And so it's not the first time that Best Friends acted in a corrupt manner by throwing animals under the bus. It wasn't the last time they've done it. They're not guided by this one particular thing about you know what will reduce killing. What it's, is right? What's, what, what is the right thing to do? That doesn't guide their decision. I don't it's, think they've ever asked themselves that question. They seem to be guided by what is in the best interest of, of not alienating powerful interests. Right, not... not challenging they don't seem to care right. if they if they if they lie that LA's no kill and the rescuers in LA go in and know that that's complete bunk because they're seeing the animals that are dying they don't care about that as it's the long, powerful interest right as long and, as and they can keep up the fiction to fundraise from the american correct. public as yeah. long as they're making money 
as long as their powerful friends are placated, as long as they retain power in this movement, that seems to be what's guiding them, not what's in the best interest of animals and how can we truly, in earnest, achieve Send sincerely no kill. Yeah. So you're best friends and you can make the decision that you can either alienate powerful people in the city of Los Angeles or you can alienate the rescue community and then put yourself at risk of being called disingenuous and being portrayed in, to the larger American public as not what you claim to be. What do you think is the thing that makes them like one of the things that you and I have always wondered when people have been engaged with a battle with their regressive shelter director is why don't you just do the thing that will make it so that the criticism will stop? And I guess the question is, best friends could, because you have said we could be a no-kill nation, why do you think that they choose to be corrupt? Why wouldn't you just do the thing that would make people also want to give you money, which is fight for the programs and, and create it in truth? But so they know it's, they've got to know it's possible. Right. Even, even though they've never created it themselves. I think part of the reason is, one, it's easier to claim you've achieved no-kill and sweep all those animals under the rug, literally sweep them into garbage bags and send them off to the incinerator where they're turned to ash or where their bodies rot in landfills. And two, in order to achieve no-kill, you have to challenge really entrenched interests. You have to fight shelter directors, uh, indifferent bureaucrats from health departments and police departments that oversee these facilities. You have to do lobbying and legislative work and in some cases litigation. Yeah, but for instance, with the Oreos law, they did lobby. They lobbied to kill it. So they could have lobbied to support it. Correct, but it's easier to maintain the status quo and and fight a legislation than it is to enact legislation that changes how an industry operates. And so part of it, I think, is I don't know that these people were ever truly passionate about life-saving and about animals. And part of it is they're making an incredible amount of money by promising things down the road. And it kind of reminds me of that board member who lacked the vision to see what we could accomplish in terms of financial support from a community once we've achieved success already. Like the endless promise of no-kill that is just down the road if you give us more and more and more is so much readily understandable to people who aren't motivated by internal ethics than achieving no-kill now and asking for the building anyways for other reasons or to improve the comfort of the animals seems less compelling to a board member who isn't really motivated by what's in the best interest of animals than promising this animal's going to die if you don't give us the money. I don't want to underplay the staggering level of corruption that is best friends, but in terms of probably the most existential threat to continued innovation in this movement and continued progress in this movement comes from Austin Pets Alive and this program they call Human Animal Support Services or HOSS because that is essentially asking shelters to close their doors to animals in need to the point that we would not just not have further innovation but we would undo the tremendous gains that we've 
already made and return to the situation that American cities faced in the 1960s and the 1970s, where shelters continued killing animals and the animals that needed care were left on the streets to die. And that's what we are seeing happening in communities that have embraced the Austin Pets Alive Haas model. As we discussed in a prior podcast, the co-optation of Austin Pets Alive, like best friends, when they got large enough and wealthy enough, the imperative became maintaining that wealth and less about being the scrappy innovator as they were when they started. And as they got a seat at the table, so for example, Kristen Haasen, one of their directors, was asked to sit on the board of the National Animal Control Association, an industry group that has a long, sordid history of fighting innovation, of denigrating no-kill programs and services, of defending abusive, cruel, regressive pounds and staff. And rather than get the National Animal Control Association to adopt the no-kill philosophy, she has adopted the philosophy of NACA to the point where Austin Pets Alive and Kristen are defending even abusive shelter directors and fighting reformers who are trying to bring a no-kill orientation to shelters across the country. And in order to maintain their place in the limelight in order to maintain their friendships. They sought a way to pretend at innovation to increase placement rates, but not challenging their friends on the NACA board, their committees with other shelter directors, and their partner shelters like best friends they're not interested in shelter reform, which is the precondition to a no-kill community and a precondition to a no-kill nation. So instead, they found a way to increase placement rates without asking these shelters to do more and, in fact, allowing them to do less. So I'll give you an example. During the pandemic, when Governors were ordering facilities that were non-essential services to close. Shelters fell into two camps. There were those facilities, like, for example, Rosenberg, Texas, a shelter the No-Kill Advocacy Center was working with, that understood they were an essential service and that we had a shared responsibility to the animals that depended on us not to simply... And the taxpayers who were paying for that service. Right. Not just simply to cease operations because of the pandemic. That was Rosenberg, Texas. And what Rosenberg, Texas was, as we discussed in the last part, where you can look at something as a roadblock... Or an opportunity. Or an opportunity, a challenge to be overcome. And so they found other ways to be open and place animals into foster care find animals permanent homes through adoption and partner with rescue groups. And in fact, through those innovative programs, they had some of the highest placement rates in their history while maintaining full operations. Then there were other communities, for example, like the city of San Francisco, 
that essentially the animal shelter shut its doors when people were calling about finding kittens on the sidewalk. They were told to leave them there. In one case in a Utah shelter, a couple found a blind cat walking in circles and they called the shelter and the shelter told them to just leave the cat there. Austin Pets Alive was one of those shelters that closed its doors to the public. And she was also promoting and encouraging other shelters to do the same at that time. Right. NACA, where Kristen sits on the board, was encouraging shelters to tell people if they find animals to leave them where they find them. And consequently, a lot of these shelters became empty. They placed some animals in foster care, They adopted some animals, but because animals were no longer coming in, they were telling people to leave animals out on the street or they otherwise closed their doors to intakes, their placement rates increased. Remember, Best Friends announced the city of Los Angeles was no-kill during the pandemic when it was closed. When they weren't taking any any animals to kill. Right. (laughs) Right. To the point where people were abandoning cats in the parking lot. And Austin Pets Alive came up with a plan with several directors, including the director from the city of El Paso and the director of the Austin Pound. People were showing up with stray dogs, telling people to just take the animal back to where they found the animal and just release the animal on the street. They wanted to make that approach permanent. So, for example, they said that we should take advantage of the closures as a result of the pandemic and create that as a new status quo. And part of their operating plan was, and this is a direct quote, intakes of healthy strays and owner surrenders doesn't exist anymore. So people who wanted to give up their animals or people who find healthy strays would have nowhere to take them. And so that would include people who maybe lost their animal. Normally, the shelter was functioning as a place for them to go look. The person finds the animal, understands you're taking to the shelter, and that's where people go to look. That doesn't no longer exist. No longer exists under Haas. And here's another quote. There is no kennel space for rehoming, for stray hold, or intake. No adoption kennels because shelters would no longer serve as adoption centers and no place to take in healthy strays. So basically just completely eliminate the idea of animal shelters at all. So the way that Kristen Hassan is saying that shelters should proceed into the future is to know, is to just cease to exist. So they would tell you that that's not what the program is about. Their plain language, no stray hold, no intake kennels, no rehoming kennels, mm-hmm. adoption kennels. The plain language of that is clear, but they would tell they you They spin it to make it seem like Yeah, like they'll find they'll find another way to handle those animals. Like occurred when Ozzy and I were walking down the street and this dog came running up to us and Ozzy and him were playing and, and I brought him home, remember, and I called the pound to see if anybody reported this dog missing and it was during the pandemic and they said, we're closed. If you find a stray animal, you're on your own. And so they would tell you that they would have these alternative programs like having people hold on to the animal and then if somebody calls saying they're missing their animals, they put them together and that the animal never has to set foot in the shelter. That might work occasionally. But the reality was when you eliminate adoption kennels, when you eliminate stray, healthy stray intake kennels, 
when shelters like San Francisco tells people who find kittens on the sidewalk to leave them there, or in Utah where people are told there's a blind cat walking in circles and they're told leave them there, that has repercussions. And despite their lofty rhetoric that what they call community, the the term they use for it is community shelters, that rather than have a shelter where the animals come in, where the animals are reclaimed by their families, where their animals are adopted into new homes, they wanted essentially make everybody a shelter employee and the community becomes a sheltering. The bottom line is they're telling shelters to close their doors to animals in need. Because they they're saying don't even have kennels for those animals. Right. And if you don't have kennels for their animals and the person says, I can't hold the animal, what do you tell them? And that's such a false choice because the choice isn't either shelters take in animals and kill them or they don't come in at all. The choice is that the animals come into the shelter. And so, for example, for Tompkins County, you treat that animal as an individual and you give them whatever they need. You meet whatever needs they might have. And then you find them a loving new home where you know they'll be safe and well cared for for the rest of their lives. It's so extreme as to be astonishing to think that, especially when you think back over the history of the no-kill movement, to know that one of the big ideas that we battled was this myth, no-kill shelters can't be open door. And this idea that, that they get to turn animals away, that that literally is now what the new status quo is arguing should be the way that shelters operate. And you got to wonder also if your advice to shelters as to how they can achieve no-kill is to basically cease to exist, then not only are you going to engender intense antipathy in your community, but also among taxpayers, what are we paying you for? Right. And it's not like it's either or. Because, for example, when I was in Tompkins and somebody called and said, I found a stray dog, there's no identification, we would ask, can you hold on to the dog and see if somebody calls or do you need to bring the dog in? And some people would say, I'll hang on to him. And maybe within a few hours, someone would call my dog's missing or within a day, someone would call, oh, your neighbor has the dog. And That's great. But what happens if the person says they can't keep the dog? That dog needs a place to go. So the then director of City of El Paso, Texas Animal Shelter, who was part of this working group that created this community, quote unquote, community sheltering Haas model. Her shelter was one of the pilot communities that adopted the Haas program and closed their doors. Literally, people would say, just like Austin was doing, I found a dog. Can I bring him to the shelter? And the answer was no. I can't keep the dog. They were told to go back where you found the dog and release the dog on the street. And people started complaining about the number of dogs that were now roaming the streets, whereas before they would have gone to the shelter. And in I mean, We've even seen that. I would say that the, the number of animals, if you think back just 20, 30 years ago, how often you encountered free-roaming animals. It was so much higher before, I would say, the advent of the no-kill movement and the success of spreading these programs that right. allowed shelters to become you know, safe, we, havens. safe havens. That is a personal experience, that, that there are definitely fewer animals on the streets now. Which, which is why I said that this Haas program wants to return sheltering to the, the way day it was in the 70s when where, you had yeah, all, all when these animals, animals in need were just left to roam. And in fact, in one of the cases, city of El Paso, let me cut to the punchline here. Yeah. The city of El Paso abandoned the Haas program because it was such a disaster and it resulted in a growth in the number of animals left 
on the street and the number of animals dying, including one little dog who turned out had a microchip and had the shelter taken in this little dog and scanned him for a microchip, the dog could have gone back to the rescue group where that the dog him that adopted yeah. him out and the, that the microchip was registered to. Instead, the dog was later turned away and later found dead on the street. And they they turned away puppies and they turned away cats and kittens. And Ellen Jefferson, one of the architects of this disastrous Haas program and the executive director of Austin Pets Alive said, if a person who locates an animal is unable to hold on to it until the owner is located, encourage them to leave it where it is in hopes it finds its way back wow. home. Wow. Now, okay, I just want to put it into context for people who don't know who Ellen Jefferson is or what her history is. Her organization helped with the no-kill success in Austin, the high watermark of, of Austin's success, which lasted many years. Explain exactly what that was. So Ellen Jefferson knows firsthand if a shelter works very hard, what it can achieve, which is what? So at one point, Austin had a 98% placement rate in earnest. The shelter was a place where animals who needed homes went, stray animals went, owner surrendered animals went. They were placed with rescue groups. They were placed into foster care. They were sterilized and released to their habitats in the case of community cats. So they had uh, all the programs of the no-kill equation. Correct. And and they didn't turn animals away. They didn't correct. Um, they didn't advise people leave the animal on the street. Correct. Right. It, they were I mean, shelter again, in the common sense definition of the word. It's not either or. If somebody finds a stray dog and they're able to hold yeah, on to I mean, the animal, that's right. fantastic. That's an open kennel for another dog where a person finds an animal or gives up an animal and isn't willing to hold on to him or can't hold on to him for whatever reason. But they wanted to take advantage of the artificially high placement rates that occurred during the pandemic in a way for them to argue, like Best Friends argued, that they helped El Paso increase their placement rate, but without the shelter reform that is necessary. And, you know, keep in mind that the director of El Paso, Texas, allowed dogs to die because they were placed in kind of an uninsulated barn-type structure where temperatures got below freezing and animals died of exposure. She should have been fired at, the, at that point, but she wasn't. Then she allowed dogs to cannibalize each other Literally, there are photographs of dogs attacking other dogs in the same kennel together where you can see dogs literally eaten to the bone, blood all over the kennel, and she wasn't fired at that point. And there are photographs of dead cats who were left in the kennels with live cats where people don't notice that these cats are dead. And yet she is one of the architects of the Haas programs she was one of the directors that implemented and turned away sick animals, turned away puppies, turned away dogs that had microchips and could have been rehomed and that were subsequently found. Some of them with their ribs exposed, starving in the street or ended up dead. 
so the, and then she that director was featured at an APA conference despite the fact that rescuers in El Paso were telling Ellen Jefferson and Kristen Haas and please don't feature the speaker she's terrible and they went ahead and did that anyway and Austin Pets Alive as we discussed in the prior podcast about their co-optation rallied to the defense of the shelter director in Philadelphia when one of her staff members physically abused the dog broke the dog's jaw and put the dog in a kennel with a jaw so badly broken that the dog saint couldn't close his mouth without veterinary care. And even though they knew the family was coming to get the dog, she ordered the dog killed and his body disposed of before the family could come and get him. And Kristen Hassan rallied to the defense of this shelter director and actually formed a committee of other equally regressive and in some cases abusive shelter directors to come up with a plan to prevent. So this shelter director ultimately resigned because of the public outcry and she wanted to prevent future shelter directors from being held accountable when they kill, neglect, or even abuse animals. And when you say that, what I hear and what's very reminiscent for me is that those are the same things that, ironically, Austin Pets Alive had to, to fight when there was the Fix Austin movement to reform the shelter in Austin. And that, that movement itself brought Austin Pets Alive to prominence because at that time they were champions of the no-kill equation and the no-kill philosophy. And now because of the corruption that came with them getting in the limelight and, of course, Kristen Haasen being on the board of NACA and now trying to find a way where she can claim fake success without alienating the people that are her new peers and colleagues, you have this new level of corruption that is, I mean, you're arguing that that Haas is the single biggest threat right now to the no-kill movement. The, the thing that Best Friends is doing is saying that 90% is, is success, right? right? And so that is a lie, and that isn't true. And, the, and they're falsely calculating. And it. they're using false calculations. But I do see what you're saying in terms of what Austin Pets Alive doing is so much scarier, which is, so in order to achieve that 90%, you have to have shelters allowing certain programs and at least having, you know, their doors open to be a shelter. And what you have now is just so cynical and so scary, which is APA saying, the way that you achieve that is literally to turn us back. I wouldn't even say turn back the clock is just move in this entirely different direction, which is get rid of animal shelters. Just when we're on the verge of tremendous success, when we've got this whole history of progress and we know how we got there, rather than get more shelters to embrace that model, and then when they achieve that success to do even more, She's telling them to just close their door and turn animals away, becoming the worst caricature of the criticism that used to be leveled the, the against no-kill. The false no criticism kill. that used to be leveled against the no-kill movement. no-kill shelters have to close their door and turn animals away, even though we created no-kill in Tompkins at an open-door municipal shelter, and others have done that since. So you had this example of El Paso, Texas, listening to Kristen Hassan and APA and Ellen Jefferson and it being utterly disastrous to the point where you have animals found with microchips dead on the street that they intentionally told people to just abandon to the streets. So. In this false hope that maybe they'll end up at home and yeah. maybe not. But you know what? I, the problem that I have with that is it's just it's it's asking us to to pretend we're stupid. 
Right. Of course, you see an animal running down the sidewalk. Anyone with a heart knows that that animal's in danger of getting hit by a car. That animal's in, in da- like, it's just common sense. So I'm not going to give ha- her that out yes, of okay. thinking that telling someone to leave an animal, homeless animal or a lost or stray animal on the street is in any way the right thing to do. When we know especially that the alternative works, right? If you have a shelter that fully and comprehensively implements the no-kill equation, then that animal has a place to go and either will get back home or will get a new home. Okay, so that it, there is a statistic that we have often promoted that an animal like a cat entering a shelter historically had a better chance getting home or finding a new home on the street than they did if they were to go into a shelter. But that was because the shelters were just basically little more than slaughterhouses. So and if you were a cat and you wanted to take your chances on entering a shelter, say in 1974, or just stay on the street and hope that you came, came across a kind, loving person who would adopt you. Obviously, if you were a smart cat, you would pick, I would stay on the street. But you're right. It is an absolutely false choice. And we have come so far that they want to return us to this completely unnecessary paradigm where well, goes keep, to a shelter and dies for sure, or maybe has a chance on the street is absurd. Well, keep in mind, again, there is nothing wrong with a shelter if somebody calls and says, I found a cat. And you ask the person, is the cat healthy. Yes, the cat looks robust. How do you know the cat is lost? It's one thing if you say, well, there's no houses anywhere around here. What is the cat doing here? But if, well, I was just out for a walk and I see this cat sitting in front of someone's house on the sidewalk. I don't know if they're there. I knock no one's home. Like, how do you know this cat is lost? And there is a reality that there is a chance the cat is near his home. And by taking him into the shelter, you take him away from his home. I get it. You ask questions. It is quite another thing to turn away, to tell someone who finds a box of kittens on a San Francisco sidewalk. To leave them there. To leave them there. Or a blind cat walking in circles, or a dog whose ribs are protruding, or a dog. See, because there's a difference between cats and dogs. dogs, A cat is not a dog, and a dog is not a cat. And we no longer live in a society where people open their doors and allow their dogs to run around. And especially in cities, it is not safe for dogs to be running around the street. And I would say it's not just the fact that there's leash laws, it's that people would be beside themselves with anxiety to know that their dogs were out roaming. Like, it's very stressful for people to find out, you know, when you knock on the door and you bring the dog home, some people are like, oh my God, I didn't even know he was missing. And and again, that's why I said Haas is trying to take sheltering back to the 60s when people sometimes open their door and let their dogs run around the neighborhood. And so somebody finds a dog and doesn't recognize the dog from their neighborhood and wants to bring him to you and actually shows up at your door and says, I got to get to work. I can keep the dog. And you tell them, well, we no longer have kennels for stray dogs. So we have nowhere to put this dog. So if you can't keep them, release them where you find them in hopes this dog will get home. You can't be surprised that some of those dogs are going to end up dead. You can't be surprised also that there's going to be not going to be a pushback for the community. And that's where 
the, the thing about no kill and whether it succeeds or doesn't succeed is that a lot of the movements and the dis- disgruntledness that comes that leads to the reform that happens at shelters is often led by people that are there a lot and they that understand what's going on. Rescuers that are in and out of those shelters all the time and they see and they know and they are also maybe get online and social media or following the, the no kill movement and they know what's possible and, and they can fight for reform. But when you're just a, a tax-paying citizen and all of a sudden you're starting to see all these stray animals and maybe you find one and you call and they tell you to leave that animal on the street, that's a shocking thing to be told by the place that you is supposed to. It's so inconsistent with what the public has come to expect a shelter is supposed to do and the service that they're paying for that I wonder how it, how it is that Ellen and Kristen are not thinking that this is going to lead, this will come back to haunt these shelters. I mean, it it seems so obvious that this is a strategy that if shelters follow it is going to be disastrous for their public image. So I think one of the things is when an organization gets big enough and wealthy enough where they surround themselves with sycophants, that they delude themselves into believing that their pronouncements have the force of law that they're that if they yeah well we have talked about this in other yeah, podcasts if yeah. they pronounce something because they're surrounded by yes men and because they start to believe in their own celebrity, celebrity yeah that they can alter the course of a movement because that's what they well, want to do but not just alter the course of a it's movement but, but alter cause and effect right because clearly if you that was bound to happen to animals in El Paso. What Austin Pets Alive is selling is fraud. It's a bait and switch. We're going to lead the country to creating no-kill. You're going to give us money to do that, and we're going to do something else. We're going to do less for animals. We're going to put animals in harm's yeah, way. Yeah, because, I mean, you could say that or leave they, they know how way. to fundraise with a certain message. They know what, like, Best Friends certainly, as you've said, is a master of this with their save-them-all rhetoric to the public while in private and behind closed doors, they're telling shelters to do something else or giving them political cover when they do something else. And Austin Pets Alive is doing that too now. I mean, they are raising money, pretending that they are on the cutting edge of no-kill, that they are challenging the myths that justify shelter killing, that they are leaders of the no-kill movement. And meanwhile, they are defending abusive shelter directors, for one. They are defending directors that knowingly and needlessly kill animals that violate the law. And they are telling communities like El Paso to do less for animals in need, to turn them away. Because when that dog in El Paso was turned away and ended up dead on the street, no one counted that dog against El Paso's placement rate. That dog died and was erased from history. Now, was it because erased? he never just because he never crossed the the shelter? So, the sh- if had he, then the shelter would have been responsible for finding him a home. Right, and right. if the shelter chose to kill him, right, then it or would kill her. Yeah, it would be in their statistics. It would count against their right. place. So this gives them a way to just yeah, it's right. but it's outra- It's truly outrageous, and it, it is cruel, and it is one of the biggest threats to the continued innovation of this movement because it gives shelters an out. So the pressure that's building for shelters to have higher placement rates, to embrace no-kill, to help more animals 
It releases the pressure by allowing them to artificially raise their placement rate while turning animals away and taking us back to the kind of society we had decades ago when seeing animals roaming the street was not the rarity it is in most American cities. And unfortunately, Best Friends has also seized on that and recently encouraged shelters to make permanent another detriment of the pandemic among those shelters that didn't take their obligations to the animals seriously, that didn't consider the lives of animals essential. And that is when the pandemic started waning initially and more businesses started opening up, shelters that had closed their doors completely started opening on an appointment basis. And Best Friends encouraged shelters to maintain that. And so if you were someone who wanted to surrender an animal, if you were someone who found a stray animal, if you were someone who wanted to adopt an animal, or if you were someone who wanted to volunteer, you couldn't just show up anymore. You had to make an appointment. And Best Friends understood that that would mean Fewer animals coming in because people couldn't hold on to the animals, so they'd let them go. It meant that the kinds of problems that full disclosure and transparency in an open door allow, where volunteers and rescuers... And Which people, is, by the way, something that the no-kill movement fought tooth and nail for right. to get into to be allowed into these shelters. Like right. Transparency is absolutely key. I think one of the lessons that we learned, one of the things that we uncovered over the last 20 years is the sheer amount of not just needless killing, not just yeah, wasted opportunities. Yeah, this is something actually we haven't talked about, but, about, but huge, is, is that when we started promoting the no-kill movement and going on, on the, the book tours and meeting with rescuers, it, it created a network that didn't exist before, and patterns started to emerge. The pattern of just rampant abuse at animal shelters, the, the neglect, the cruelty that was uncovered there was enormous. Yeah, so there's two things. One, key to more adoptions, more rescue, more placement is public access. That's one of the things that we fought for was more sensible. Sensible and, hours. Yeah, more yeah. and more hours, uh, giving rescuers unfettered access to the shelter so that they can pull animals scheduled to be killed, allowing volunteers to help socialize animals in clean kennels whenever they could or wanted in order to reduce the excuses that shelters use to kill but it also keeps abuse and neglect in check because volunteers and rescuers, as we've said a thousand times, are the eyes, ears, and conscience of the community. And if you can keep them out, abuse is what thrives in darkness. And the one shelter that announced that it was going to keep the public out without an appointment policy permanent was LA County. With the full support of Best Friends, under the fiction that somehow this will increase the number of animals placed. All evidence to the contrary and all logic to the contrary is a shelter with a long, ignoble history of just tremendous abuse of animals that are hidden from public view. And one of the cases I'm reminded of is they had these rabbits in this out-of-the-way room in the back where the public didn't go, and nobody was caring for them because there was no eyes outside the shelter looking at these rabbits. And it was a day that the staff called Spinal Monday, where when they finally went into that room of rabbits, had they had no water, 
their cages were filthy. They had no food, so rabbits were cannibalizing one another. One rabbit was being attacked by other rabbits where he had been eaten to the point that his spine was exposed. There was a rabbit with his eye popped out of his socket, being brutalized by other rabbits, all because they were in an out-of-the-way room without public scrutiny. And that's what Best Friends is calling for now is shelters to shut their doors, shut their doors and not let the public in to see what's going on. Correct. It's devastating. And so we kind of stand at this crossroads where we can continue with the same values and the same commitment to holding people accountable that led to the widespread success that we've had so far. Or we can go down this other fork that has been opened by Best Friends and Austin Pets Alive where we would not achieve success in the terms of Best Friends just kind of be stuck at this new status quo level forever where we're not addressing that remaining group of animals that are still dying. Or even worse, we can go down the APA road, which is a cruel retrenchment retrenchment, and literally abandon the idea that we should even really have shelters at all for our community's neediest animals. It's just a terrible choice. So that that's sort of where we are right now. And I mean, it's important definitely to recognize how incredibly far we've come and how much there is to celebrate. But what we should take away from that celebration is like a renewed commitment to continue this to its end, to its rightful conclusion, which is to create shelters that are truly shelters in action as well as name. And then, as we're going to talk about it in our last podcast, like once shelters have eliminated the stain of the original sin of killing, like what else can our animal shelters be? But right now, given that the large organizations, best friends and influential groups like APA are selling this snake oil, what is the one thing we should be focused on right now as an alternative to these horrible visions that are being promoted by these harmful organizations? And by the way, let me just also say one thing that occurs to me is that one of the benefits of the era that we live in is is you could argue there's a lot of downsides to social media, but social media certainly allows a, a good message by a small group of people to proliferate. And while APA and Best Friends may be making a lot of money, the fact that they're large and influential doesn't mean that they aren't completely vulnerable. The opportunity always exists to show a better way. And it doesn't matter if you don't even have a lot of money. If you achieve that and you promote it the right way, that opportunity, it changes the it, Overton yeah, window. It, it, it shifts yeah, it the Overton, the Overton window. window. And now you have best friends looking at you and feeling threatened by by that. And Ellen Jefferson and Kristen Hassan being threatened by a better way that someone else is promoting. And it, uh, eventually they have to evolve. change. They have to evolve. And that will also happen to best friends and Austin Pets Alive and their latest iteration of this movement's corruption, which has a long history of corruption, will fall by the wayside, just like all the others. It's why the rescuers of El Paso were able to get the Haas program shut down. Now, their next challenge is to refocus on the no-kill equation, a process that was derailed when Austin Pets Alive came in and corrupted the whole mission. And I have no doubt it will carry the day. So every social movement in American history has embraced legislation to achieve their aims. And, and often not as the end point, but as the starting point of what it is that they want to achieve. Like we want these laws so that this injustice no longer continues. Right. So they didn't just want promises that 
we're going to do better as a society. Because especially in sheltering, we already have those promises. In fact, that's what Best Friends is promising. That's what Austin Pets Alive is promising. And they're delivering something else. And the fact that nearly a million animals are still being killed every year, despite everyone saying we're doing our best and we all want the same thing, when we know that that's not happening. And in fact, Austin Pets Alive is telling them to do even less. So we have voting rights acts so that your right to vote isn't contingent on a mayor's promise. We have environmental protection laws so that we can get companies not to pollute and not just promise us they won't pollute. We have all these laws. They don't laws. have a choice. Right. Basically. We have all these laws in all these social movements that codify the norms that we should expect as a civil and right. so humane we, society. If we want to guard against corruption, if we want to achieve and maintain success, we need laws that prohibit alternative conduct. Well, that's what this movement needs to focus on. It needs to do a better job codifying laws that regulate how shelters operate, regulate the kinds of programs and services that they have to do, that tell them when they can and cannot do something as it relates to an animal. And so if El Paso, for example, was forced to work with rescue groups, if it was forced to provide a safe haven for animals that needed it. If it was forced to scan for microchips in order to get animals like that puppy that ended up dead that they turned away home. If it was forced to provide humane care, prompt and necessary veterinary care, to have an offsite adoption program, to have a TNR program, to have behavior rehabilitation program, to provide all the programs and services of the no-kill equation then they can be the kind of shelter that they've long promised but failed to deliver on without the kind of corruption that they're being sold by groups like Best Friends and Austin Pets Alive. And if we start to pass laws like rescue rights legislation across the country, if we pass laws increasing holding periods, providing humane housing and care, and all these programs that allow animals to move effectively and efficiently and expeditiously through a shelter and either into the loving arms of new homes, into foster care, into the protective embrace of rescue groups, back home to their original families, or in appropriate cases like with community cats, back to their habitats, we can start seeing placement rates on the order of 99%. And because it has the force of law, it wouldn't matter what Kristen Hassan, her latest snake oil is. It wouldn't matter what Francis Batista wants a shelter to do. And it wouldn't matter what the director wants to do. Their, their discretion would be eliminated. Before these laws started to get passed, I had never seen a shelter go from a high kill rate to a high placement rate with the same director and staff. But since some of these communities started implementing these kinds of shelter reform laws, I have, where they're forced to implement programs and run their shelter a certain way, and placement rates dramatically increased. So the No-Kill Advocacy Center has modeled legislation for many of these. We have rescue rights legislation. We have the Companion Animal Protection Act, which basically mandates for a shelter the no-kill equation. We have legislation that extends and bifurcates 
holding periods to give people enough time to reclaim their animals, but also allows shelter to adopt them more quickly and to place them with rescue groups more quickly. It just doesn't allow them to kill them. We have legislation to improve adoption programs, to prevent abusers from getting access to animals. We have legislation that eliminates housing discrimination for people whose families include animals to increase the supply of pet-friendly housing. So there's a number of laws across a wide range of areas, but in this case, we have very comprehensive shelter reform legislation that eliminates the kind of discretion that allowed that pound director in El Paso to turn animals away. It would have armed rescuers, volunteers, and members of the public with the information, access, and tools they need to ensure enforcement of those laws. I think another interesting thing that happens when you pass laws, too, is how these laws can actually change the culture of a shelter. Or, for instance, with the rescue rights legislation, an interesting thing happened and the need for rescue rights legislation in California was because of their very hostile relationship, the way that the shelters that had all the power would not cooperate and work collaboratively with the rescue community. But once you took away their discretion to do otherwise, they had to start working with these organizations, and it ended up improving relations between rescue groups and shelters. You're absolutely right. So it kind of created a whistleblower protection provision, because in the past, some shelters did work with rescue groups, but a lot of times their access to animals was hinged on not disclosing the kinds of inhumane conditions that rescuers often saw in these shelters. So if you went public, they would kill animals that you were willing to place. And when your right of access to take these animals off death row no longer hinged on that, it allowed them to go public and show what was happening in the shelter. And it actually forced these shelters to improve their conditions. And by forcing the shelters to improve their conditions, it it eliminated the things that the rescuers and the shelters were at loggerheads over. And so another thing with with laws that that require how a shelter be run, it also professionalizes that industry because you have shelter directors that just go in there and basically without standards can just operate as their fiefdom. They can run it however they want. And not only if if the shelter is, is being held accountable to certain laws, not only do you have recourse for the people in that community that are the animal lovers to hold that shelter shelter accountable when they're not doing the right thing. But you also have, it, it's a way of maybe um, controlling who might want, want that job. Because so now it's you, not as easy as right. like this last job I had where no one, I could do whatever the hell I wanted and nobody cared and I had all the power. Well, I'm looking at this job and you're, you're telling me I have to, if I run it, I have to run it in accordance with this law. That's more, it's more worth, trouble than it's worth and I'm not even going to apply for that job. So yeah. it's like a gatekeeper. Absolutely. And I realize that when you try to implement these laws, there will be pushback from organizations like Best Friends and the ASPCA and the, and the shelter itself. But it's not insurmountable. It might take some time because the kinds of laws that you're looking for that uh, save the lives of dogs and cats and other animals has broad bipartisan support. So when we passed the 1998 
California Animal Shelter Law, which one of the provisions was that rescue rights provision that saves about 85,000 plus animals a year. But it also increased holding periods. It created a holding period for owner-surrendered animals. In most states, for example, stray animals have to be held for a small short period of time so that their families can reclaim them. But owner-surrendered animals, because they have no families, they're being relinquished, in most states can literally be marched from the front counter to the back room to be killed without ever being offered to for adoption or to rescue groups. And the Hayden Law actually enacted a holding period for owner-surrendered animals to give rescue groups and to give new families the opportunity to place them. And people think of California as very one-sided politically, but at the time we had a Democratic Senate and a Republican Assembly and a Republican governor. We were very divided politically. And despite being divided politically, it passed nearly unanimously and was signed by the state's Republican governor into law. And when we passed similar legislation in Delaware, it passed unanimously. Now, by so, members of both parties. Yeah, so people might be listening to this and thinking, well, a political solution to this problem seems unlikely in the current climate where there's just such incredible gridlock regarding the state of our country. But it is absolutely true that this is and probably maybe the only nonpartisan issue that people love animals. And this is actually something that both parties have historically gotten behind. Right. I mean, oh, think about the anti-chaining legislation that was passed by the Republican-dominated legislature in Texas and was vetoed by the governor and members of his own party and people who voted for him as Republicans, the backlash he received was so intense, he asked the legislature to repass the law so that he could sign it. They did overwhelmingly, and he did. Okay, so given that, who are you thinking should lead these efforts in their communities to pass these laws? Well, definitely the rescue community that is being denied access to the animals, definitely shelter reform advocates that find their desire for cost-effective, readily available, non-lethal solutions to shelter killing to be ignored or delayed or promised in five or ten years when... It doesn't take five or 10 years. In fact, if you look at all the hundreds of communities across the country with placement rates in the 90th percentile and higher, the vast majority, I'm talking the vast, vast, vast majority, achieved it in six months or less, and many of them achieved it overnight. And, and these mandates also can help close that remaining between the 90 and the, the 90% and the 99%. This can close that by forcing those shelters to... Not pretend, not do what Best Friends is telling them to sweep them under the rug, but actually address the needs of those animals. Okay, and then, I mean, I think another important type of person that should be considering this kind of legislation is the no-kill shelter director that is listening to this right now because you will not live forever or you might not stay in that job forever. I think that if you could have told us that we would ever have to have a podcast like this about Austin Pets Alive, it would have pretty much blown our minds to think that we would have to talk this way about an organization that had historically been such a champion of no-kill. 
So it's not just that organizations can shift allegiances, but absolutely so can people. And we need to institutionalize these changes. But if you're a shelter director, you cannot rely on the continuity of what you have done remaining when you leave, because we've seen it too many times where and, and I can, it yeah. comes down to leadership and people leave and or in the case of like Austin Pets Life, become corrupted. They, they become corrupted. Well, and I mean, I can tell you firsthand that to that no-kill shelter director who built an organization and who built programs and services and then thought they would hand the baton to someone else and things would either continue and hopefully improve, watching San Francisco and the kinds of things we created and did there fall apart was so incredibly painful that even if your community is at the height of its success, it, it can quickly go south. And so regardless of whether you are a shelter with a high kill rate, a community with a high kill rate, or you're a community on the forefront of innovation, in order to sustain this, so there's no backsliding, so there's improvement, and so that the animals have legal protections Regardless of who's running the shelter, the shelter right. you need that, to that codify be, seriously these your into your law. greatest gift to that community is right. to ensure your success in perpetuity by making sure it is enshrined in law. Right. Especially if you're a successful shelter and you have a lot of public support, and the city council knows how popular you are, and you go before them and say, "We want to be a leader. We want to lead this this cause." We've seen that happen in other communities too, where the shelter itself said that this would help us be a national leader by passing one of the most if not the most progressive animal protection law for shelter animals in the country, that is certainly an important thing to do. And the good news is you don't have to recreate the wheel. Because yeah, we have, we have model, model laws. laws on and the we, no-kill. And we work, we've worked with many communities, many people in the past with to help pass laws. With legislators, with governors, with U.S. Nathan's senators. Nathan's an attorney. But it should be noted that while this is absolutely essential for achieving a no-kill community in earnest and maintaining it in perpetuity... It's only the start of what a SPCA or Humane Society should be doing and can be. When Henry Burke incorporated the first SPCA and others modeled themselves after him, they had a very broad vision and advocated for all the animals in the community. And over time, when they took over the pound contracts, and while since our movement is the one doing the killing, we need to eliminate the stain of that original sin. And we do that through the no-kill movement and through legislation. So that right now remains our prime directive. But the mission of an SPCA and a humane society was supposed to be so much broader and can and should be again, to the point where there is no difference between the no-kill movement, the mission of an SPCA, and the larger animal protection, animal rights movement. So these organizations weren't founded as distinct as movements. Distinct, right. I mean, you would say that the animal protection movement was founded. It became about animal sheltering in terms of humane societies and SPCAs. Then out of that arose the no-kill movement as a counterforce to try to eliminate that corruption. And when that happens, the need for the no-kill movement, or even that word, those words, would hopefully not even exist. Because the idea of killing animals would be unthinkable. And those organizations would just become animal protection organizations, as they should have always been. And then the no-kill movement is the animal protection movement, 
and they can then rebroaden re their, re mission their mission to go back to be to an advocate for all animals in the community, regardless of whether they ever cross their doors. Right, because these organizations were founded as advocates for the animals in their community. A lot of them had a very local mandate, right, to take care and of it. A and a very they, broad and, vision. Right, and and how they live in the public's imagination right now is associated with dogs and cats. It wasn't how it started out. And so I guess our, you're trying to wrap this up to say that that will be the topic of our next well, podcast. Well, so we've spent the bulk of this part talking about what went wrong. No, what went right, then what went, went wrong. wrong. And, and so the now dangers we're gonna, we face right now. Right. right. So in part five, the last part of this podcast, we are going to lay out a vision for what an SPCA and Humane Society can and should be and what a truly humane community in the broadest sense of the word would look like. Okay, joy, join us then and stay tuned. If you want to learn more about these and other animal issues, visit NathanWinograd.com, AllAmericanVegan.com, NoKillAdvocacyCenter.org, and subscribe on Substack.